folks and welcome to the Besides and On podcast. My name is Skewa. On the other side of the table we have Monk. How are you doing my friend? What up? That was weird. Yes. That was weird, weird, weird start to what we're doing here. I'm delirious. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. So we're going to get right into this. We have on the line Stephanie and we're going to make sure we pronounce this properly. We'll see what Stephanie says. <laughs> Stephanie Shuttler. Is that? Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Yes. Okay. Look at us. Look at us, how amazing Speaking English in that. Pretty good. Excellent. Okay, so uh, could you introduce yourself, Stephanie, and give us a little introduction as to what you do? Sure. So I am a scientist. My specialty is in wildlife biology. And um, so I'm trained as a scientist. I'm actually going through a career transition right now. I started a new a new career last year. But um, for the past uh, 17, 18 years, I have been a scientist. So um, basically what I've been doing is studying animals. Um, so it's very research focused. We use the scientific method to try to answer questions about animals my my focus for my my PhD was on animal behavior on forest elephants. So I looked at the um, the relationship between forest elephants, like like which elephants were hanging out with each other, and I actually collected um, dung samples from them for their DNA, so we could look at relationships. Nice. And then more recently, <laughs> I'm sure you want to ask me about that. <laughs> And more recently, I worked on a project um, that uses camera traps. So these are these are cameras that are particularly made for wildlife, and you put them on a tree, and whenever animals walk by, they take pictures. So we have projects um, literally all over the world, and I specifically work with kids and, and teachers to incorporate this research into their science classrooms. Mm-hmm. You said they're um, collecting DNA on elephants. Um, how many elephants now have 23 and me profiles? <laughs> 23 and me, is that what you said? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we didn't we didn't quite do that. There is um there is a uh, a system for animal DNA that you do actually put in all of the different um genotypes that you get or the different like if you have sequences you add it to the to the bank um, that's gen bank so that that i guess is their 23 and me yeah <laughs> i cannot believe you asked that question i ask silly questions constantly it's just part of my i mean that's kind of what scientists do though with it with the genetic information they um so yeah we'll figure out who's related to whom it depends on what kind of genetic stuff you're looking at you can look at you can look at material that mutates a lot faster, so that would give you um, more close relationships, or you can look at long distance relationships. So for example, like like um, like elephants across continents of Africa, like are there different subspecies? There are different species. There's a forest and a savanna elephant. They used to not be considered different species, but, but now there's substantial um, evidence that they are. So, so you have a little bit of um, evolutionary biology as well, because we've had. Uh, do, do you do a little of that as well? I actually don't. My okay. my advisor in my PhD program did do some of that. Um, she she looked at at um, at forest elephants across um, the continents across their range, but mine has been more. Um, 
the immediate family relationships and um, and then when I did camera trapping, I, I stopped doing genetic work altogether. So that was more ecology, trying to understand animal communities and um, how animals interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And how long have you been doing that now, did you say? I started, I graduated um, university in 2003 yeah. and then in between that in graduate school I had three internships I worked in Utah for the Bureau of Land Management and I worked at Disney World actually in in one of their labs there that was really fun and then I had an internship in Kenya for a study abroad program for a year and then I did my my graduate program and moved to Raleigh North Carolina to work at the museum here on a postdoc project Awesome. Was that, that a, was that Disney World Florida you were in? Or? Yep, Disney World in Florida. I am actually, I did love Disney growing up. I still love Disney. Mm-hmm. Um, and Disney World <laughs> was, um, so I worked at Animal Kingdom, which is their newest park. Yeah. And it is half theme park, half zoo. And they're yeah. a really good yeah. zoo. And because they're Disney, they have a lot of money. So they can invest a lot in research and the animal stuff. Mm-hmm. Have you have you seen the uh, the half uh it's on Disney Plus. It's a documentary about like inside Animal Kingdom. Have you seen that yet? No, I haven't actually. Oh, it's great! I'll have to it's watch great that. to watch. I'll have to add that to my list. Yeah, Animal Kingdom is. I, I mean, I loved working for Disney World in general. I thought mm. it was just such a great place to work. But you do have to really like Disney. Um, and we did have like special Disney training. Like you, you can't do certain things. You, you have to look a certain way. Like you can't have, at least, at least the time I did it, they might have changed the rules a little bit, but you can't have like purple hair, for example, or visible tattoos. You have to cover up your tattoos. Um, so you do have to like Disney. Um, but I working in the, the research lab, we did interact with the public. But most of my questions were about the research in our lab. I rarely got questions about the park or, or Disney World in general. Mm-hmm. So what kind of research were you doing actually in Disney World? On, in Disney World? Yeah. We, so I worked in an endocrine lab, and we were mostly measuring hormones of animals. So yeah. we had different research objectives. But the the primary one that I was working on was basically just assessing animals at the park. So it's with zoos, there are certain animals you want to breed that are that are difficult to breed. And um, zoos, for the most part, especially mammals and birds, they don't they don't capture animals from the wild anymore, at least good zoos Um, in, in the United States, too. That might not be true around the world. Um, but but we we don't want to do that anymore because it's just it's just inhumane and, and not good for the animals. So you do want them to breed, and um, some animals are really like I said they're really bad at breeding in captivity. So elephants are one. We don't know know exactly why. It's really difficult to get them pregnant. When they are pregnant, they miscarry a lot, and they're pregnant for a really long time. They um, have a gestation period of two years. So um, a lot of our work was, and we had we had a pregnant elephant at the time, one who was very pregnant. Um, so at that point, we were monitoring her every single day, her hormones, and there are 
signals and the hormones that um, that signify when the pre- the pregnancy is close, so you can prepare the the vet team to get ready for that. Then there are other animals like the cotton-top tamarind. That was another um, animal that we did a lot of work on. Who They're actually an endangered species, critically endangered. And they live only in, in one area of the world. So they're an endemic species. But they breed really well in captivity. So you can't keep breeding them in captivity because it, it's really difficult to release animals into the wild. They have to go through a specific protocol and it has to be habitat for them so um all and and if you breed too many then then you have to look for zoos to take them on so we Mm. basically put them on contraception and you have to make the contraception make sure it works so a lot of that was monitoring them as well but there's there was all different sort of management questions like like sometimes when you have to move animals you can measure their stress hormones so you so you make sure they're not too stressed out with the their new enclosure or their or the new individuals that they're around. And then um, Disney does do some research on wild animals as well. So we also were looking at the hormones of the wild cotton top tamarinds in uh, Colombia and South America. Mm-hmm. That's such an interesting job. Oh, definitely. Just the thought yeah. of everybody else talking about, oh, I was in the office and I was doing this and I was doing that. <laughs> and then you're coming up with, well, I was looking for the best contraceptives for animals so that we don't have too many. Yeah, and it's 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 super interesting because like for elephants in the wild they breed really well. Um but there are so as as a whole African elephants are really threatened by poaching as for both species, especially the African forest elephant. But some countries are really good at managing their elephant populations. So in South Africa, they actually have a lot of elephants. In some parks, they they do have too many elephants for that park. And elephants, they they're called ecosystem engineers or keystone species, and um, they will knock over trees. So if you have too many elephants in one area, then they can turn a more forested savanna into complete savanna. But um, the, the soil can um, erode more quickly, so it can actually cause problems for other animals. So there um, have been some experiments trying to develop contraceptives for elephants to have in the wild because they used to cull them and um, people don't really like the idea of that. And there's evidence that the elephants suffer trauma, that the ones that aren't killed um, remember and, and they just behave differently. So it's a it's a really complicated situation. Mm-hmm. Amazing, amazing. So, well, if we can get back to the beginning, um, what got you into like being this sort of interest in science? I didn't know you could become my type of scientist for a, for a very long time until I was in college. So when I thought of scientist, I thought of like, you know, somebody with test tubes in a lab, and that did not excite me at all. Yeah. Um, I actually didn't love science that much in school. I liked, I liked biology a lot, but um, I, did, I wasn't like, you know, like a, a big diehard science fan. Um, so, but I loved animals, and my family really encouraged me to love animals. And um, we actually weren't that outdoorsy of a family, but um, 
just like the things that I did outdoors were really meaningful to me. So a lot of a lot of my connections to animals were actually just like in my backyard. Like we would look for insects or or frogs at a at a local pond. Um, but when I um, was in college, my my brother suggested that I study abroad, which is um, when you take a course or a semester in another country. And I was just like, okay, I'll do that. That sounds fun. And I went to the study abroad office to look for different um, programs. And at the time I was a theater major, I wanted to be an actress. Mm. So I had all these pamphlets about theater and those were mostly in Europe. And then I saw a couple on um, ecology and marine ecology. And one of them was to study abroad in Kenya for wildlife management. And I just thought it looked like such a cool opportunity and here in the United States, people have this perception of Africa being like really dangerous and um, just difficult to get to. So I was like, when am I ever going to have a chance to go to Africa again? Like I didn't, I didn't see myself going there in the future for like vacation or something. So I was like, I'm just going to do this. And then when I was there, I, I learned all about wildlife biology and that you could have a career in it. And, and before, all I really knew about was Jane Goodall. And she she basically like gave up her life to move to Tanzania and study chimpanzees. Yeah, and yeah. she um, lived at yeah she lived at this really remote field site and and I just knew I could never do that. But but actually when I went to Kenya I found out that there's um, you know jobs in the states and or you could have a job in the states and and travel abroad to do some research. So I learned there are a lot more opportunities. Mm-hmm. I love That's it. still cool though. Just it's... getting to go. How long did you say you were there? Was it a year? I went initially for a month, and then I went back to the same program as an intern, and I stayed there for a year. Mm-hmm. That's... Kenya is like the mecca of like of like uh, wildlife and stuff like that. that. That's the place you always hear that people want to go. Yeah, I I loved it so much, and if anyone has the opportunity <sighs> to go. They should go. It's um, it's super easy if you contact a tour company. It's actually really hard to do it in a non-luxurious way. <laughs> Even though you're going to these national parks, they have all these beautiful hotels and, and they take really good care of you. They drive you everywhere. So um, like I said, people here in the United States think it's a, it's a big scary trip, but um, it's, it's really quite easy and it's a magnificent experience. So was this when you were studying elephants, or did that happen later? Was this a general wildlife thing? Yeah, so this happened before I started studying elephants. And when I was in Kenya, that really sparked my interest in elephants. We learned about um, Cynthia Moss's research. She's kind of like the, the Jane Goodall of elephants. She's been studying savannah elephants for, I think, like, 40 years now and she identified all the elephants in the park so she used they get these their tears in their ears and she used these ear ear tears to identify the elephants and she tracked like all of their families and their relationships and she found that they were really social they had these really important family structures that actually helped them survive um, and she just made a lot of cool discoveries that they, they do weird behaviors, like they touch the bones of other elephants. They seem, they seem to mourn elephants when they pass away. Hmm. Um, so 
I just thought that was just really cool and fascinating. And then when I, when I decided to go to graduate school, you have to find a, a professor in the States. You have to find a professor that will like take you on. And my professor, she did her research on genetics, but she had done some work on forest elephants, on, on using the DNA to, to count individuals. Um, it's because before they were using dung counts, um, but you don't know, elephants poop a lot. So you don't know if the, the, you're counting the same elephants over and over and over again. Like maybe it's one elephant in that area that's pooping all over. But <laughs> if you have their DNA, then you can tell individuals. So you can get a much better population estimate. So that, that's what her work was. And I, I was actually allowed to do pretty much whatever I wanted in terms of research. And because I like the Savannah elephant work so much, I decided to do similar studies as Cynthia Moss on forest elephants, because even though elephants as a whole are the largest uh, land animals, forest elephants are hardly studied at all. It's actually, it's really difficult to study them. So uh, that was a challenge that I decided to take on. So let me just go back a little bit. I am a, a fully grown 27-year-old man with the mind of a teenager. Um, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so what was happening here? You were counting the droppings of ele elephants and you were the basis was the amount of dropping you could sort of round that up to an average number of how many elephants there were. Where is that right? Have I, have I picked that up right? That's that's what my advisor did. So mm -hmm. so she she yeah she she would like walk through the forest, do these transects, and she'd find fresh elephant dung, and then you take a sample, and when you get back into the lab, each each um, dung that you're able to get DNA from has a has a unique um, like genetic fingerprint so then you can essentially count the elephants you put it you put it in a formula that accounts for, for the recaptures so getting the same um, the same elephants the same poop from the same elephants again that gives you an, an estimate you put it in a formula but what I was doing I I was working in a park where I could see the forest elephants and I was identifying individuals and, and trying to collect dung from them. I wasn't always successful. And then from the individuals, I would, uh, I would create these networks of, of who the elephants were hanging out with. Because in Savannah elephants, they have these, these family groups and they become more extensive, kind of like, kind of like getting together with your relatives for um, Christmas or holidays. So the so Savannah elephants do that. But when you see forest elephants, you pretty much always see them alone. You'll see like a, like a mother elephant with her calves, but you don't see them in these big groups. So what I was interested in seeing is maybe these elephants are really in these bigger groups, but you can't see them because of their habitat. So the only places you can study forest elephants are areas that have uh, fragments of savanna. So there's always, even if you're in the savannah, there's always forest around. So there might be elephants hiding in the forest or at these big clearings that have um, the minerals in them. The soil is really rich in minerals and the elephants come to eat the minerals. So again, there might be elephants back in the forest that you can't see. 
So that was my goal to figure out, are they really in these small groups or are, in, are they in these bigger groups? And if so, are they, are they associating with their relatives? So that's, that's what the genetic part was for, for to see if they were related to each other. And uh, were they? For the most part, yeah. Um, so the, the ones that were in, that, that we did find in groups. So, so when I did my, my observations, I rarely saw them in, in groups bigger than, honestly, two individuals. And even that okay. wasn't, wasn't that common. Um, but when I did the analyses, I did find that they, they were associating with more individuals than what you're just seeing in the observations. And yes, they did tend to, to be based on their genetic relationships. But compared to savannah elephants, like, like the ones in Kenya, they are not nearly as extensive as, as those ones, where, where in those ones, they pretty much meet up with um, almost every elephant in the population. This is, this is for the female elephants. The males have their own system. They disperse from the female groups when they're teenagers, so um, like 12 to 15. And, um, and male elephants were thought to not be social at all, but some new research shows that they, they do have some social groups. So elephants turn into teenage boys? Elephants what? Ele el male elephants turn into teenage boys. They're like teenage boys? Yeah, as soon as they become teenagers, yeah. they become moody and yeah. leave their mom and... <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah, and the the mom elephants will sometimes kick them out of the group too if they're if they're it's hanging like out humans too as long. well. But like humans, don't, you don't tidy your rooms, you get chucked out of the house. Yeah. That's where it goes. But, so, the, but the females, they all stay together with life for life until the group gets too big, and then they'll split into two different groups. Okay. So this may be a silly question again. <laughs> um, do elephants There's forget? No silly question. <laughs> we get told that a lot. In we get told that a lot, and we keep asking them, so we don't care. <laughs> um, so, do elephants ever forget? <laughs> I mean, we can't we can't measure that exactly. It would be really difficult to measure, but we do know they have really good memories. Okay. Um, so that is that is based on truth. Um, and they're they're among the most intelligent animals. Um, on the planet um so and that's that's pretty exciting for because usually we think about primates as being really intelligent and elephants are smarter than some primates um not probably not chimpanzees but um but yeah definitely up there with dolphins um some some species of crows are actually among the, uh, the smartest um, animals but yeah they have really big memories and that's why their their family structure is so important because the the oldest female um she retains the most knowledge because she's lived the longest and she actually like guides the group so she um like like scientists have shown in times of drought she can remember watering holes that she's been to um like maybe even like a decade ago and other elephants didn't go to those ones so um it's really important for their survival and um, unfortunately, what's, what is their major threat is poaching. And the poachers, um, they kill the elephants for their tusks, and the tusks grow with age. So those elephants are usually the, the biggest target. So that's, that's why there's so much research into the social structure um, that um, different scientists are looking to see, like, 
like how do groups without matriarchs, that's, that's the oldest elephant do compared to those with matriarchs. And the ones with them have more babies, the babies survive more, um, they do better at predator defense. Um, so, so yeah, it's really important for, for their survival. See, Craig laughs oh. at me every time I ask a silly question, but it's great. I love it. And we've always got a great answer as well. Yeah, no, at the museum, I, you know, when we gave talks, anyone could walk in. Our museum yeah. was actually free. And yeah, we had to answer questions from two-year-olds to people who are really knowledgeable about, about all of this. So, so yeah, there's no, there's no stupid the first... questions. Okay. So... Need more than two-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> so what is so what is like a, a what would what a question be for somebody really knowledgeable in the subject that they would ask you? That's a good question. I think that would be an interesting about, thing to bring up. About elephants. Um I don't think I can remember off the top of my head, but you know, they might they might have said like oh, I read I read this in a in National Geographic or I saw an art, like a New York Times article about this or something. Um, mm. But I, I can't remember anything really specific. But usually they refer to um, a news story or something. Yeah, I've got a question like that. Oh, it's okay. not about elephants. Okay. But uh, I asked uh, a friend of ours who's an who's an ecologist. I think is he? I think so. Yeah. Uh, and this was this is a Facebook post. So some, fr- it, some friend you are, too. <laughs> no idea what it does. It's a, it was a Facebook post, so it's not um, probably not true. Yeah. But uh, was a scientific journal. Yes. Uh, it's about wolves. Do you know much about well wolves? Wolves about wolves. Yes. I know. I know some things about wolves. We can you can try me. Okay, so there was a a, a pretty popular post on Facebook. I was talking about the way wolves. That's a tough word to say in Scottish. Wolves. Wolves. <laughs> well, what? what, what oh, I'm not going to get into it. Anyway, uh, that, <laughs> they, they go in a specific order where the sick are at the front and then they're protected by a certain, the strongest wolves and then it's the sort of mediocre wolves in the middle and then the strongest at the back and then the leaders at the back as well. Is, is there any accuracy in this? Because it doesn't seem to make much sense to me. No, I do think that's true. Um, okay. I'm not a wolf expert, but I did listen to, I had a big car trip a few months ago, and I actually happened to listen to two podcasts about wolves that had wolf experts. And one one did talk about that, that I think I think you're right. It was the leaders that, that hang back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, because I asked my friend and he had no idea. So uh, I thought... Well, you're a wildlife biologist. <laughs> we'll just throw any old animal yeah, at you and see if you know it. The thing about being a scientist, especially like once you go to graduate school and get your PhD, you you focus on such a narrow area of research that sometimes you lose touch with like regular things that are going on. And and yeah, people ask you these really broad questions. You're like, I don't know. Like like I'm terrible at science trivia because all of my trivia is like in this really niche thing. <laughs> and you know, they're asking questions about chemistry and physics and I took yeah. that in college like twenty years ago now. <laughs> well we have a perfect example of how annoying we can be sometimes. We had a a pretty well educated physicist on the podcast at one point. Mm. We consider him a friend as well. And uh, the first thing we asked him was how a boomerang works. <laughs> and uh, he didn't know. So 
Um, that kind of goes yeah, to what exactly. you said. Well, to put it forward as well, he works on um, bomb detection. So he, work, <laughs> he works on machines that like uh, can detect. Yeah, that's very different. Yeah. <laughs> so we were, so we were like, hey, boy, he does he does physics. Yeah, uh, he should know this. Yeah, but um, to to give him all the credit, he came back in the next time. Yeah, he did uh, come back answer, with a cool. with a proper answer. He properly went home and researched it, and he uh, came back with a proper answer. So shouts to him. But uh, yeah, in hindsight, we felt yeah, a bit bad great. for testing them because uh, we, we we were kind of um, what would I say naive that we didn't really understand. None of I don't know if it comes across, but none of us are scientists, and um, so we were kind of naive as to what scientists are supposed to know. Mm-hmm. We just assumed, oh, he's a scientist; he knows everything, and that was a bit unfair on well, our part. And we also assume it's kind of like it, like a like a lawyer sort of thing. A lawyer will know. Um, sort of more about their chosen field than than anything else, but they do have to have a general knowledge of most things. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that. Yeah, it's. I I don't know where that stereotype comes from with scientists, but mm-hmm. yeah, everyone's given that um, perception. And I worked um, in my last job. I worked a lot with teachers, and that was like one of their big takeaways: is that scientists don't know everything. Yeah. <laughs> That was that was something they really liked to share with their students because, at least in the United States, when I grew up, you're kind of taught that there's an answer to everything, yeah. and um, and you just study like for that specific answer, and and that's what's so different about being a scientist. And and actually, I'm still kind of bad at this, but you really have to look at the world and like wonder why things are the way that they are, and. Like I said, in school, I was just so worried about getting good grades is that I just like focused on studying that I that, you know, kids, you have that ability to talk or to ask questions. But I lost that and I had to relearn how to do that. And you also just assume like everything has been studied. But um, really, there's there's so much left out there. There um, there's actually like really cool findings here, even in, in North Carolina, like like, you know, there's new species detected. Um, not necessarily of, of larger animals or, or mammals or birds, but of insects, it's pretty common. And um, a lot of actually, um, what's really interesting, I think, scientifically now is a lot of the research on um, urban ecology. So like how how nature is, is um, doing in urban ecosystems and some animals and um, other species actually really do well in urban environments. Mm-hmm. Foxes, they do well. Mm. <laughs> Random fact. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you said a surprising thing earlier. It was that um, crows were among some of mm. the most intelligent animals. Yes, I think it's the Macedonian crow. But um, yeah, there's a there's a scientist who's a crow researcher on Twitter. She has a big following. Um, but but yeah, they can identify faces, people's faces. They've done studies with human masks, and they can they can identify faces. Because huh. <laughs> crows, like here, at least, are considered sort of really vermin, like like just sort of like, like rats, annoying rats off the sky. Yeah, we never <laughs> seem. I think birds generally are sort of dismissed a lot, which is quite sad. Because like if you get what smashed a lot, 
D- dismissed. Oh, the math. No, 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 birds. Bird. There's a confusion here. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen is laughing. Do you know where the confusion happened there, Stephen? No. No. That's great. But it was great to listen to. That was, that was will, I start, will I start that question again? Yeah, try again, Craig. I'll, I'll start again. So, <laughs> <laughs> what's weird about that is that <laughs> humans generally tend to dismiss birds as a group of animals as just sort of a thing that flies around. It's not really considered like a uh, a big thing. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Humans just seem to dismiss birds. Yes. Um, it depends on the human. Um, I would say the majority of people do, but um actually like bird watching is huge and people who are, are birders so they they um they bird watch and usually they have a life list well these people definitely do that are that are this dedicated but um some people will actually plan their vacations around what ver- birds they can see and they'll go to like these remote islands in alaska just to see specific species um so so yeah, I'd say the majority of people kind of ignore birds, but there are there are there's a lot of people out there who love them, and um, it's a big hobby of theirs. Mm-hmm. So, so to me, that's really sad if crows are considered to be one of the most intelligent um, animals. Oh, I thought you were talking about people vacationing, but um, no, yeah, it's sad yeah. that they don't get more appreciation. I guess uh, parrots do, though. Parrots are pretty that's true. Um, known for being smarter or, or i mean maybe not for being smarter but they i mean the parrots are smart but maybe people just enjoy them because they're able to like repeat what people say but um but yeah i i mean i personally love birds because i think they're a great way to get connected to nature and and i have a, so i have a life list so anytime i see a new species i check it off and it's just kind of like a it's it's honestly a fun thing to do and once you start birding, like you'll notice just these little differences between the birds and just how really beautiful some of them are. Like here in North Carolina, we have this red bird. It's just like, it's a cardinal. It's extremely common. It's a bright red bird and you just kind of ignore it because it's there all the time. But it's a, it's a really beautiful bird when you, when you look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I, when I went to Kenya, that's where I started learning how to bird. And because all of them were new species to me, it was really exciting. And then when I came back to the States, I just realized there were so many more species that I wasn't seeing. And it, it was kind of fun, like as a challenge to see like, like if I could find the species and, and then um, of course there's different species with different times of the year because of migration. So it can be a fun activity. Mm. I always feel sorry for those guys that like um, run those national parks and stuff. Cause they get to see those like dangerous Sometimes dangerous, something like like just awesome looking animals, and these are things that are like really impressive to us. But to them, they're kind of like, oh, I see these every day. It's not a huge deal, really. <laughs> yeah, like like with our students in Kenya, by the end, like they didn't even stop for zebras or giraffes anymore. Like you see them <laughs> oh. so often, you just yeah, just, you don't even stop. Yeah, I just imagine them just sort of driving the car on a safari and they see a lion, they're like. Oh, sort of drive fast. <laughs> it's like who cares? Nobody wants to see this. 
They did. I think we always stop for lions, but um, but yeah, like we, I mean, we saw them quite a few times. Um, even elephants sometimes you drive past because, especially, we were close to Amboseli National Park, and that's where Cynthia Moss did her does her research. And there are a lot of elephants in that park, and it's a small park. And the elephants, they're really habituated to tourists, so um, so, so I never recommend like you know you drive right up to an elephant well i mean you can drive close to them but usually um if you get close they'll like walk closer towards the car and you can get quite close to them um but yeah like towards the end we would drive by elephants as well see that (laughs) because i'm not used to it i'm still in that position of that sounds dangerous because elephants are quite big not to underestimate not to understate it (laughs) but like that seems that seems quite scary to me well, you're in a car, so it's it's not that scary. And the guides are always really well trained, and you can they they can read elephant behavior and kind of tell if if something's going on. Um, most elephants, so elephants, I would say in general are friendly, and people have made them unfriendly. Um, so if there's no poaching happening in, happening in a park, then the elephants will be habituated and they'll be pretty friendly like they're in Amboseli. Um, and in Amboseli, they've actually done research on the elephants that they can identify different types of people so they can tell tourists from um, two different types of Kenyan tribes as well. They act differently because the different tribes are, are, one of them is more threatening to the elephants. And of course, tourists aren't threatening to the elephants at all. Um, but where I worked in, in, um, in Gabon, the forest elephants in that park were really aggressive and we don't know exactly why, but it, it probably has to do with they were poached. And then in that area, a lot of research does happen. So they might um, be kind of like reclaiming back their area. And um, yeah, they were aggressive. We had to walk really slowly in the forest <laughs> and uh, we got charged um the, the males sometimes can be aggressive too they, they go through this period of um heightened testosterone and they they want to fight each other for the females so if you come across one that is like that it's called must then they can be aggressive and there are cases even in Ambastelli where somebody was in the wrong place at the wrong time and they came across a must male and even though they were a researcher, their car got um, got banged up. They got I, I, they got out of the car, and the car got like like I don't think destroyed, but pretty banged up because they ran into a musk male. So, mm-hmm. so I always say that any animal can be dangerous, um, even the even the small ones. But, but that brings me on to an interesting thing. Um, I tr- I was about to watch one of your videos earlier on, and I ended up starting to get into doing something else. But it was the Mountain lion guy video that you put up. You had an interview with this with that guy. Yeah. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Because like I don't know if everybody knows this, but uh, could you explain uh, about about the video? Sure. So there was a video of a mountain lion um, that went viral. I guess a couple of months ago now. This yeah. this guy was running in uh, Utah. And he ran this trail all the time, and he saw some 
some mountain lion kittens. And initially, I think he thought they were bobcat kittens. Yeah. Um, but even so, bobcat. So bobcats are much smaller. They're like probably like double the size of a house cat, whereas a mountain lion, um, they're smaller than lions, but you know more more along that lines. They're a big cat. Mm-hmm. Um, so initially, I think he went closer to the kittens to get pictures. And then he saw the mom and the mom did this, like this really long, aggressive uh, charge towards yeah. him. Um, Cause she, she mostly wanted him out of the way. Yeah. And my big concern is like when stuff like that goes viral, then people become really scared of the animals and, and the media ca- characterized it as kind of like a mountain lion stalks this guy um, and really what the mountain lion was doing was trying to make herself scary yeah. so that he would go away from the kittens and leave them alone. Um, mm. But yeah, it's an incredible video. Yeah. Um, I would be scared like crazy <laughs> if that happened to me. I was traumatized when I first seen that video. It sounds, like, <laughs> uh, it sounds like I'm on her side, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, um, but he, he had good intentions yeah. and... Um, yeah, it's just kind of like the wrong place at the wrong time, and it and it ended up being okay. But I, I like to, and I like to t- tell people not to harass wildlife. So, so if you do see animals with young, the mother is always kind of be on, is always going to be on alert. So you don't want to get too close. You want to keep your distance. And even though she, um, the kittens weren't harmed or anything, like like doing that for her or doing that display uses a lot of her energy. It's it's like sort of like if you get in a fight with somebody and you're screaming at the top of your lungs, you feel drained afterwards. Mm-hmm. So um, things like that can affect their ability to get food. Um, they're, yeah, they're just they're just stressed out afterwards. So the the farther you can be, um, the better in general. Mm-hmm. I like that sort of thing of sort of explaining videos where it looks like the animal's in the wrong or it looks like the animal's extra scary or whatever. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you know him, but there's a a snake expert, I hesitate to say, and photographer called Austin Stevens. He used to have like documentaries on TV and stuff. Um, and he does this a lot on Facebook now of showing videos where people have made it out like a snake's really aggressive and trying to hurt people. And then he explains sort of why the snake is in that mood. If it's been messed with, if it's been pregnant and it's trying to protect its eggs or whatever. And he sort of just explains that snakes aren't going to attack you Mm -hmm. unless they need to defend themselves and not to be scared of snakes and that sort of stuff. uh, I feel is quite important. Yeah, exactly. I actually had a podcast episode about snakes because um, so I grew up in an area without venomous snakes. Now I live in North Carolina and we do have several species and one of the species I see all the time and they are, um, they sit and wait for, for food. So they'll just, you know, like, like be in the middle of a trail and they're trying to cross the trail, but just in, in terms of their predation, they'll they just sit and wait for a toad or a mouse or something to walk by and then they eat it. And I always move them off the trail. I use this, I usually find a big long stick and move them off. And there was one time when um, somebody saw me do this and they were like so petrified that I was going to get bit. Mm. And um, sometimes the snakes do turn around and try to like bite the stick a little bit, but for the most part, they just slither off. Like they don't, they don't want to, to bite you. And I've been, by accident, I've been within copperheads. I've been within, 
I guess you guys are meters, um, <laughs> less than a half a meter um, within a copper head, like, like multiple times, and they don't do anything. Their whole thing is to blend into the environment. Um, we have them in my backyard with my dogs. They, some, they do bite dogs. That's not unheard <laughs> of. But, um, but I mean, my dogs have never been bit. And I, like I said, I've seen them in my yard. I know they're here. Um, so, so yeah, you have to really mess with them to get them to bite you and people kill them. And that's actually your, your biggest risk in getting bit is, is if you, um, if you try to kill them, you're more likely to get bit. You know, talking of dangerous animals, right? Do you know how many compilation videos I've seen on YouTube of geese and chickens chasing people? <laughs> actually, they... so when I would, when I would work with the kids, um, they would always ask me, like, what's the most dangerous animal I worked with, um, or at least maybe in North Carolina. And they always expected to meet, for me to say, like, coyotes or bobcats. Yeah. And I would always say that the Canada goose. <laughs> because, <laughs> like, sometimes, Crazy sometimes, like, when I, I remember, <laughs> what? Crazy animals. Yeah. Because sometimes, um, they, they would be at schools a lot, actually. And I remember this one time in particular, I, I had to like go by this fence to get to a certain area and they just like wouldn't move. And I tried to go as far out of the way as possible. And they just like looked at me and started hissing at me. And I was like, I'm, I'm not doing anything. Leave me alone. But I just, yeah, I just, I I just love you. that you're, I love that at some point you've been in the middle of Africa and confronted by elephants, you've been absolutely fine. But the geese. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd be fine. I wasn't yeah. when I had to run from elephants. I was not fine. I was definitely very, very scared. Um, and in Kenya, you're always in a car. And if you if you are on foot, you are with people with guns. You do have to have a Kenya Wildlife Service person with you. Mm-hmm. In Gabon, it's actually really interesting. They don't they don't use guns there. So you have guides, um, but I guess because you're in the forest. You you can't see the elephants that close, so I think a gun is just probably it's it it would be too um, you wouldn't have enough time to shoot it. That's I guess that's my understanding from it. But we don't. There's no lions in Gabon. Well, actually, there there was one documented, but um, recently, um, but there's not like large populations of them. Sorry, I thought you were going to... You, you, uh, Stephen brought up that goose thing because I have a story about a chicken. I was I was in Wales and uh, Wales is notorious for dangerous wildlife. I'm sure you know. And uh, I was living in a, in a cottage next to a farm and the person who owned the farm asked if uh, we wanted to feed the chickens. And so me being my <laughs> animal-loving self, I decided, yes, I would love to feed some chickens. That would be very nice. So I started feeding the chicken, the chicken food stuff, whatever it is. Seeds or something. Seeds or whatever. And uh, it wanted more than I had. <laughs> and it started running after me. And I kept backing up and backing up. And eventually it bit my thumb. So for weeks I had a numb thumb and the part of my nail was missing and my thumb was just messed up. So that's my dangerous encounter with wild animals. <laughs> a chicken. Oh no. So chickens scare me now. Yeah, I know. 
any animal I think can be can be dangerous if it really wants to be. Uh, by my cats, when I when I have to clip their nails, they can be scary sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cats, raccoons get, as yeah. well. You seen well, raccoons no, getting cornered? One. <laughs> raccoons getting cornered. They but yeah, it's always it's always good for people to keep a distance from wildlife, even if it does seem friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not good to touch animals unless it, like. Like, I guess, like, turtles and stuff are okay. Um, but even frogs. Like, I used to catch frogs a lot when I was younger. And I would always release them. But um, I've learned from some amphibian groups that it's not great for us to touch them because we use so many different products on our, on our like, on our hands. Like, we'll use lotions and perfumes and stuff. And the, 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 the skin of the amphibians is really porous. Um, so that might have an effect on them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when I when I see wildlife, unless I'm doing something to help it, like like here we have turtles crossing the roads and they can get hit, so I will pull over and, and move them. But um, but yeah, you should leave wildlife alone. And now we know to avoid crows because they can recognize faces. Yes, and they'll know you for next time. <laughs> they'll remember. Well, just don't do anything bad to them. If you <laughs> if you're good to them, then they'll know you're a good person. Yeah. But it's more like if you do something bad, then they can recognize you and, and take out um, revenge on you. Yeah, I think one of the studies actually used, you know, those like um, those like presidential face masks. I think one of them used those. <laughs> so they had like different they had like different presidents and the, and the crows could Amazing. recognize them. I wonder if there's like a mem- like, you know how when you've got a memory stick for your computer, it has a certain amount of data that it could recognize. Mm-hmm. Like it would be so many hundreds of thousands of pictures of people. Mm-hmm. I wonder if crows have like a bit where they just stop. It's just they either need to delete one. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know. I guess it's similar to humans. Like we, I, guess, I probably have to do with like the more the more repetition. Like you need to see it a certain amount of times before you recognize it. But mm-hmm. but yeah, I guess we don't have a limit. Just limited more about our time and our interactions. We need to get a memory expert. What what would be a memory expert? Like a, a psychologist. Yeah, that would that would be really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or neurologist. Neurologist, that was it. Yes. Well, <laughs> so uh, so what are you doing nowadays, uh, Stephanie? What, what's your uh, chosen What's your chosen path right now? Yeah. So I um. So doing all this work, I actually realized that um, so I was always driven by conservation. I always wanted to help animals. And while science is, is really important in conservation, what I realized is that most of the conservation problems by far are solved by people. And they don't even really need science. So like for the elephants, I saw them getting poached. And I mean, I didn't physically see them. I didn't see any carcasses or anything, but I, I knew they were getting poached. And, and in the past two decades, I think I think the estimate was like something like 65% of forest elephants declined in just the past two decades. So although I thought it was really cool to study these animals, I, I didn't see my research having an impact on their conservation. And what I really started to, to realize through working with kids is that in order to get people to conserve, you really have to get them to have these like connections to nature. 
And when it happens in kids, when you're younger, those connections stay with you for a long time. So, um, and if you talk to like any of my friends who are wildlife biologists, why they became a wildlife biologist, they'll always say something like, I grew up loving animals, I was outside all the time. So those are really important. And I just wanted to pivot my career to be more about communication and trying to get these messages across. And um, this spring, I'm starting a, a kids program. So, so it's like wildlife biology for kids. And we're going to be doing real activities that scientists do. And it's going to start off with me. So you'll learn from real scientists. And eventually, I want to add other scientists to it. But um, And so they can learn the research. They can learn about current research and get those connections to animals. Because so so many of us are, I mean, myself included, I'm inside most of the time. And every generation is getting worse and worse. And if, and if people don't know about these animals that exist in their in their backyards, if they start uh, becoming threatened, um, they're not going to care about it. So now I, I've pivoted more to to get people to to care. And um, another thing I also do is career advice as well. So I actually, when I graduated with my PhD. I didn't realize how competitive this job was and, and nobody prepared me for how competitive it was. I, I knew that becoming a professor was competitive, but I thought my field was, was just normal. I didn't, I didn't realize it. And I just applied for, um, I would apply for all these jobs and think I was perfect for them and I would get an interview and I just wouldn't get them. And it wasn't, it wasn't just me. Like all of my friends were having a really hard time and nobody was talking about this. So I just started blogging about that. And um, I realized just so many people needed help out there. So I wrote a book about, um, it's called Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology. It's all about if you want to become a wildlife biologist, what you should do because the field has also changed so much. So um, gone are the days of Jane Goodall for the, the most part of when you're just like watching animals. We have all this technology now, like um, these tracking devices and the camera traps. And we have citizen scientists who are collecting data all over the world. So really scientists, like the big challenge nowadays is to analyze these big of data. So it involves a lot of statistics and a lot of um, computational analyses. Um, so, so yeah, so I try to give advice to people now about um, how, how they should become a wildlife biologist. What, what are the best um, routes to go? Awesome. Okay. Um, Craig has some uh, questions from uh, podcast listeners. Uh, we call this the quickfire round. But it tends never to work that way because we usually get long answers from the guests. Yeah. So, okay. Um, you could answer this uh, quick, slow, anything you want to do. And also, um, okay. a lot of the questions are uh, rubbish. Silly. Yes. Silly questions. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so the first, okay. the, the first, I'm not even going to ask that one. That's ridiculous. <laughs> the first question isn't actually a question. He just said, ask about the Burmese pythons in the Everglades. Oh, okay. I can, I can talk about that, actually. Okay. okay. So, um, so, what's going, so the Everglades is uh, an area in Florida, in the southern United States. It's a, there's a national park. It's a, a wetlands area. So it's a really important area. And um, it has um, 
it's a really delicate ecosystem, like a lot of a lot of ecosystems are. But people, I'm sure you know about Florida people. I'm sure Florida people make yeah, international that news. Is, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of interesting people in Florida, yeah. and if you watch Tiger King, actually, yes, there yes. they they showed some of the people in Florida, and and they like to Americans in general like to own exotic animals. So people get a Burmese python, probably as a as a young snake, and then it grows too big, and they don't know what yeah. to do with it, or they escape from somebody's house and they got into the Everglades. Well, the Everglades is a lot like their their native habitat um, somewhere in Southeast Asia. Well, I guess Burma, um, and actually they're they're endangered, but um, so they've they've populated a lot in the end of Everglades, and they're doing really well, and and so much so that they're they're threatening um, wildlife. They're an invasive species. Um, so, so yeah, they're a big threat to the ecosystem and scientists are trying to figure out how to, to kill them. That's what, that's unfortunately, I hate killing animals, but, um, for invasive species, that's really the only option, um, unless you can get contraceptives working, long-term contraceptives, but, um, they're really difficult to find, even just like going through the Everglades itself. It's really, it's a, it's, you know, it's this big swamp. So it's really hard for people to navigate. And um, there's different research to try to figure out how to get rid of these snakes. And one of the things that they do is um, they capture the the male snakes and um, they put trackers in them and then re-release them. And then the male snakes will lead them to female snakes. And then they try to use those those male snakes to kill more snakes, which is... Again, sad, but yeah, um, but yeah it's, it's threatening the ecosystem. Yeah, I know. I never wanted to work on inda- invasive species. Yeah. So but yeah, was, it's a big, it's a big problem. That was a that was from Russ Murray. I keep forgetting to say their names. And <laughs> um, second one is from Neil Adicott. Sure, that's his name. <laughs> Why is my life so wild? <laughs> <laughs> Wildlife. So wild? Wildlife. And he's said, why oh, is my life so wild? We can skip that one if you like. Wait, why is wildlife so wild? No, why is his life so wild? I still don't understand. Yep. We'll skip does, that one. It doesn't matter. It's a silly question from a silly, silly man. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Our pandas... Wait there, I think I've mixed up this question. Hang on, just a sec. Apologies. No silence. Okay. Uh, oh, I've missed it. I think it was our pandas safe. She likes pandas, and she doesn't want to like see a panda and then be attacked. Or do you mean like are they going to be extinct soon or something? No, like, like, like if you see a panda, are they like aggressive? Are they big scary animals or are they just like cute fluffy things because they look cute? Well, I don't think there is like cute and cuddly as people think that they are. But I also don't think that they're dangerous. Um, I don't know a ton about panda bears, but the main thing to worry about um, with bears in general is if you are um, too close to the young. So that's really when when bears become dangerous. Um, So actually in eastern North Carolina, we have the largest uh, or the highest density of black bears. So we've done some research there and people run into them all the time. Um, but yeah, you just have to be really careful when you get into their young. 
and of course in the west grizzly bears can be dangerous polar mm, bears are yeah. dangerous too and you have to have guns when you're in those areas and carry bear spray when you're around grizzly bears but i don't think i don't think pandas are are that bad but it, but again any animal in, is dangerous so mm. you don't want to go up and and hug them we are really lucky about how safe we are in scotland there's Definitely. nothing <laughs> we've got midges there's they are they're annoying. <laughs> They're worse than chickens and geese, yeah. I would say. Is a midgey, is that the real name? Is it called a midgey? Yeah, they're called midgeys, yeah. They're annoying. They even sound annoying. <laughs> they do sound annoying. <laughs> what a <laughs> shitty animal. Okay. I do know that in, in Europe, I'm not sure about Scotland, but there is there are some animals that are making a comeback, like the, like bears and, and wolves. They're... they're um, yeah, they're reclaiming some areas that they were missing from for a long time. Yeah, I know that we used to have the lynx and bears and wolves, wolves I think. Wolves. And uh, they are planning on adding the lynx back to, mm -hmm. I think it's UK. I think it's England like specifically. England. But UK uh, yeah. um, but I think country. Scotland, was, uh, Scotland had like a big, um, a, a large amount of like bears and wolves, like way back in the day. This was like way, yeah, yeah. way back in the day, and I think that there were talks years ago about like reintroducing some of them, just to cull because a lot of the deer population has become really huge. Yeah, that's why. For instance, the um, in the village we live in, uh, the deer population was so crazy that they were all there was like they were like incestuous and stuff, and they were all they were all like being infected just because they were like. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how that would happen. I, I was trying to explain in some way, like a new. Yeah, but it became an issue. Basically, it, did, it became a bit of an issue. Okay, next question. Hey, you guys have the. I'm, I just googled real quick. Well, Scotland wildlife. You guys have the the Scottish wild cat, which looks like a regular yeah. house cat. <laughs> yeah, they're awesome looking things. Is it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I'm you sure... guys have pup. You have puffins too. Oh yeah, there's an island. What's that? Uh, there's an island called the Isle of May, which is not far away from here. Really, is that a bird? It's a bird. Yeah, it's like a. It's got like a big sort of like orange beak, but like there's colours on the end of it and stuff. And it's specific to like only certain islands in Scotland. Oh, that, so it's not like here. It's not. No, no, it's not here. It's like it's specific to there's a, the Isle of May. Okay. Which is an island that's that has some form of population of uh, humans and stuff, but. Not very many, but there's like a whole coastline and like a, like a big cliff area where puffins and there's a lot of like um, marsupials and stuff like that that live up, up up in that area. It's just like over overgrown with puffins. It's crazy. It's a cool, cool wee place. I do know that we've got the adder, which is the only well, venomous that's in like snake. That's in like the highlands and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so we do have a snake here. It's just, I've never seen it. Yeah. It's not really around these, these gra areas. grass snakes as well, but again, they're not really here. Yeah, not here specifically. Uh, yeah, that's an, another thing about snakes too. Is like when I went to Africa, people would always ask me about the snakes. They'd be like, "You must have saw seen a lot of snakes." And and for being in Kenya I, for a year, I only saw um, snakes twice, mm. and then I think in Gabon, I only saw them like twice too. Yeah. So you just they're there, but you just don't see them. See, that almost scares me more. <laughs> just knowing they're there. Yeah. <laughs> like I'd rather see it so that I know where not to stand. Well, that that's what gets me with spiders. 
Yeah, because that spike, scares me. Like in any hot country I hear about, I'm like, oh, they're almost yeah, definitely going to have some. They're bagging. They've probably got wings. <laughs> they just fly spitting at you. Bat tarantulas and shit. <laughs> just <laughs> crazy. Oh, I hate spiders. Oh god. Right. Okay. Did, uh, did you get another question or? Uh, yeah, sorry. That uh, that last question was from Victoria Schwa. Uh, next question. I want this last question. I want to leave for the end, but this is the second last question. What simple life hacks can people do to protect the wildlife that comes into their gardens? Um, just probably create habitat for them, and actually, um, let your your garden go a little bit, or let your your yard go a little bit. So, um. Try to try to restore it to the natural landscape as much as you can. So planting native is really important. Like here in the United States, people mow their lawns a lot. Um, so doing that is actually really bad for wildlife. So if you can let it go more, create structure for them. So like, um, like even a Christmas tree, like you can let it break down in your backyard, and that can serve as habitat for um, rodents and um, other small smaller carnivores. Um, so doing things like that, putting out water, um, really those are the two main things. You don't want to directly feed wildlife unless it's birds are okay, but you really have to make sure the feeder is not spilling over food. But other animals, they can become dependent on it and they can become really habituated to humans, which puts them in danger. Um, and it also might cause human wildlife conflict. Again, I'm not sure about Scotland, but you guys, I mean, there's red, red foxes, I think are an issue in, um, in Europe in general, but, um, here in the United States, like people are scared of coyotes and sometimes they do kill, they do kill cats. Sometimes they do kill small dogs and the, a big factor probably contributing to that is, is, um, is food. So people will like leave dog food outside and that gets the coyotes used to it. And then if there's not enough food, then they might kill, kill a dog. So um, the more wild you can keep those animals, the better. But yeah, just creating habitat and if you can plant native plants. And, and, and we've been talking a lot about mammals, but um, wildlife extends, um, really people consider plants to be wildlife too, but it extends to insects and butterflies and by restoring that native diversity, I mean, that, that really helps out those animals. Even if you live in a more urban area, there's been studies to show that these little green spaces really help out birds, butterflies, and insects. Nice. That was from Rachel Morrison. And to be honest, you kind of answered the last question, which was from Dave Ecosay, who asked if you should leave food out for urban wildlife. But I think you've answered that and you basically said no. Yeah, definitely not. Um, that's a that's a big no no. Yeah, and don't put steaks nearby. Especially your if you live, especially if you live close to bears. Um, bears are like like here in, in the U.S. and in, in Yellowstone, there was a, a like a pretty famous case where people fed all the bears and and they just started breaking into people's cars. They break into people's oh. homes, and. Um, Sometimes they'll trans, like more recently, sometimes they'll translocate the bears if they're, if they're a problem. And sometimes the bears will come back completely. So oftentimes they have to kill the bear if it's, if it's that dependent. Um, or there's been cases where they've moved it and the bear has completely starved. Like there's this one bear that was fed donuts 
and it was moved oh, and then it just started starving yeah so um, if you live anywhere close to bears be be really careful with food and, and animals can i ask i don't know what time you've got left but uh, I'm, I... I'm good you can ask more questions okay mm-hmm. uh so in every other podcast we've done in science month i mean we've interviewed uh, people who do more controversial science quote-unquote controversial like the uh, virologists and things like that where they're dealing with vaccines and you know how people get and uh, normally yeah. what we end up talking about at some point during the podcast is conspiracy theories but you seem to be in an area of science where I can't imagine there would be many conspiracy theories oh, you know what I can't think of anything but there's bound to be like myths yeah so do you have any anything you you occasionally come into contact with that you're like oh no I need to I need to squash this quickly yeah actually we do um there like actually one of my videos that is becoming popular is about black panthers so people think they're they're really tied to the idea that that black panthers are in the United States so black panthers really refers to a, a melanistic leopard or jaguar and leopards live in Africa and jaguars live in South America. They did sometimes, they, they do sometimes range into the United States, but really only the Southern um, extremes, so Southern Arizona, Southern Texas, and, and there's so few of them, but it's a genetic mutation that makes them black. Mm-hmm. Um, and even here in the United or even here in the East, we don't have um, mountain lions. So pumas, mountain lions, cougars are all the same thing. They used to be in the East, but they were killed off along with wolves. And I get comments all the time that people have seen them. And when you ask for, for photos, documentation, they, they don't ever have us. And um, they say, they say, say look, they say they see black panthers all the time. And again, they don't have any documentation of it. There's all these stories. And they get really upset if you try to, to tell them that, look, there's no, there's no evidence of them. Now, yes, you do get, there are instances where they have been documented. So in those cases, um, like, for, for instance, there was, I think it was 2011, a mountain lion that was killed in Connecticut, which is really far east. And the DNA showed that that, that mountain lion dispersed all the way from the west so it it traveled across the country and i'm sure that there are cases of escaped exotic animals again so um like at at our museum we actually got a a specimen of of a capybara which is an animal it was it was found killed on the road and that animal is only found in south america so there's definitely no capybaras here It, it was probably somebody's pet so there, there could be instances of that, but in terms of like a breeding population, no, they are as as far east as like the Missouri area. That's that's really where they are. And even then, we were we were only getting pictures of of male mountain lions mostly. And the you're likely to get more males because those are the animal, those are the the, the sex that moves around more. They they disperse farther distances. But people are really tied to it, and we have we have had so many camera traps all over North Carolina State in every single county. We had um, camera traps in 33 states or 33 protected areas in the East Coast. 
And more recently, my colleagues started this nationwide camera trap survey where they have every single state um, collecting photos. And I mean, it's not, it's not across the state, so it's, it's still patchy, but you only get mountain lions where we think mountain lions are, which is in the West. So it's, it's not an issue of like, oh, the, like mountain lions are hard to detect and that's why we're not getting them on the camera traps. No, we get them all the time on the camera traps where they are found. So there's no, there's no evidence that, that we're getting mountain lions. And you would, you would also get the roadkill too, because yeah. in yeah. Florida, there's, there's Florida panthers and there's not very many of them. I think there's definitely less than a hundred. I can't remember the exact number, but I think it was just like just last year or something there were like it was something like four or something were killed in like the first couple of months of the year from roadkill so um, again even if you don't have that many animals you're going to get roadkill and we just don't get that here see it's one of the conspiracy theories where it's like flat earth I don't know what you would benefit from hiding that like if there's a a breeding population surely that would be amazing for you and people have accused me of like being in this government secret and I don't work for the government. When I was at um, the museum, our, mu- our museum was a state museum, but I wasn't paid by, by the, by the museum. I was paid through grants through the nonprofit side. And regardless, all of the people we work for work with for the most part are citizen scientists. So they're volunteers. So they they take the training online and they set up the camera traps and they upload the photos and identify the animals. So they would have to be on this this conspiracy theory too. <laughs> like we would have to like somehow tell them like if you get a mountain lion, don't upload it to Emamal or you know send it to us and we'll destroy it. Um, and you would also have to trust that they wouldn't like tweet it out or put it on Facebook. And if, if you caught a mountain lion, I'm sure people would put that because they're so excited to get like coyotes yeah. and bobcats and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, we're not getting them and there's, there's no conspiracy. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. But yeah, I don't get why people are so attached to it either. It's like, I actually thought, I used to think there were mountain lions here. I thought they were um, like more North in New York. And then I found out there weren't. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Like that's interesting. I mean, I wasn't like mad about it. Well, that's, you just moved on. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. It's, it's very but if simple. You, if you check, if you check out my YouTube video, there are some amazing comments on it. Like, like I know this one guy. He said a black panther like jumped on his truck and he shot it, but it got away. <laughs> even even if you are in an area where there are black panthers, to get an animal to do something like that is is amazing. My my one um, colleague, she has studied jaguars in Belize for, I think, at least 10 years. And she's only seen, like, five or six in the wild. So to have one jump on your car and, like, have that big of a display, that's, that's pretty I love how that guy created. I love how that guy created a scene of, like, the Jungle Book slash Fast and the yeah. Furious. Great. It's yeah. amazing. I don't, I don't know what happens to these people, but um, there is there is an organization – that does verify mountain lion pictures and a lot of people they see it, it ends up being dogs or cats and they don't they don't estimate the size right but some people are just so convinced that it's that it's a mountain lion i mean we even like our small town is like semi-rural scotland mm-hmm. and people have said that they've seen big black cats here you oh, know what totally, is about like black cats panthers, panthers. Yeah. 
Like, Christ. no, no. Never. Nothing like that. Uh, one final yeah, question, you... which I just thought of right now. Uh, <laughs> is Bigfoot real? Is, oh, is Bigfoot real? Yeah. No, again, there's no evidence. I mean, if 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 something was ever captured on a camera chat, I probably would be the first person to be like, "This is amazing." But um, no evidence, and there's even been studies where where they found like hair samples in um, Asia and like the mountainous areas of Asia, and those turn out to be wolves and bears. So, so mm. no evidence at all. So it can't just be like a a, a different chimp something. Gorilla. Yeah, the gorilla thing. Well, the people people here, I mean, I guess there could be a case where there's an escaped chimpanzee, but mm. I feel like if there was, it wouldn't survive very long and it would be dead somewhere. <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah. People, like I said, people here own a lot of weird animals. Um, and there was, this, there was this case like five years ago where... I can't remember what happened but the guy either there was like a massive breakout at his zoo where he let all the animals out but he had yeah he had a zoo with like lions and, oh. and leopards and they just got out in this in, in ohio and the, the cops had to come and like shoot all these animals oh, see, see that's so again in scotland if if like edinburgh zoo let out all the animals mm. what are we going to do police here don't have guns yeah, yeah. no one has guns they have to <laughs> shout at them loudly yes no, so no we're just going to be well, there's, probably, there's probably vets with tranquilizers, at least. I mean, yeah, yeah, the problem with that. I'm just, imagining, military, yeah. I'm just imagining a police officer sort of shouting at them. <laughs> hey, you! <laughs> Get back. Do your police officers really not carry guns, or are you being a Not at all, no, no, we don't have guns. We, we have, like, armed officers, like, just, like, um, for, like, really specific, like, reasons. Like, like if they have to go to, like, a... I, I, I don't know. The thing with a gun. Yeah. yeah. But, like, they, most officers don't carry guns Yeah, in the UK. So, for instance, like, we stay in a place called Fife, and it has something like a few hundred thousand people. Mm-hmm. And and the town that we stay in, we stay in a place called Kennery. Uh, our nearest uh, armed response unit is about 30 to 45 minutes away from us. So if someone wow. had a gun issue here... It would take thirty to forty-five minutes for yeah. them to get here, so that's our nearest gun is uh, that far away. Are you allowed to own guns? No, no. 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 Well, okay. So, you, well, ha- what about hunting, though? Well, yeah. So, technically, you can't own a pistol in the UK, but it has to because I've, I've researched this because I quite like guns, even though I I feel like I shouldn't be allowed to own one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're allowed to own a pistol if it has a a long barrel, a very, like a supremely, stupidly long barrel. Like an old cowboy gun. Yeah. And <laughs> a long, like, handle thing. It's like a, a handle attached to the handle. So it just looks ridiculous. What? These pistols that you're allowed to own. Because it's, it's so you can't conceal it. It's to be so long that you can't hide it. So it has to be bulky and look really stupid so you yes, can't and really, get it. Yes, and really, like, inefficient. Yeah. I feel. But of course... Yeah. You're not allowed to... Self-defence isn't a thing here. So even if you have a gun, you couldn't use it for self-defence. You would just be a murderer. You would just be a attempted murderer or whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of no point in having guns considering the different laws that exist. Mm-hmm. So yeah, police don't have guns. We don't have guns. 
Øh, det bliver han altså fint. Ja. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I wish we had fewer guns here in the US. <laughs> Um, so well uh, again thank you Stephanie for coming on that's been highly highly appreciated thank you it was fun I had a great time awesome awesome um, do you have anything else you want to add in like um, like uh, anything you want to advertise and stuff like that before we go um, just if people want to find me, I'm at fancyscientist.com and um, you can find all my stuff there. If you have any questions, you can send me messages, either an email or through social media. I'm, I'm really happy to respond to, to anything that you guys have to ask. Awesome. Awesome.